going to make a switch this morning in the reading of Scripture. I had intended to read Romans 1, but I trust you understand and know Romans 1 well. Certainly would be appropriate for consideration of the seventh commandment. Romans 1 is the chapter that sets forth the reality we call general revelation, that God reveals His power and His Godhead to all men so that they are without excuse. No man can deny that there is a God and that He must be served and worshipped. Romans 1 sets forth the reality that man deliberately and consciously that is, with rebellion, turns from that revelation of God to serve the creature rather than the creator. That is, he becomes an idolater. And Romans 1 is also the passage that sets forth the reality that that idolatry expresses itself, especially in vile forms of fornication and wickedness that God gives man over unto. I want to read rather this morning a passage that applies the seventh commandment as well as the first to the church and its behavior. So we're going to read this morning Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. Perhaps as we're reading it, you can take note of a few things. Among them, God is speaking to Israel, that is, his church. And God condemns both their idolatry as well as vile behavior, their fornication, and equates them. God also sets forth in a number of places his attitude toward that. You may look for various words that are used to describe the behavior as well as God's attitude and judgment, his cursing of it. And then finally also God's promised deliverance from it. We're going to read the first 44 verses. And it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, Son of man, speak unto the elders of Israel, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Are ye come to inquire of me? As I, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Wilt thou judge them, son of man? Wilt thou judge them? Cause them to know the abominations of their fathers? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, In the day when I chose Israel, and lifted up mine hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob, and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them, saying, I am the Lord your God, and the day that I lifted up mine hand unto them to bring them forth of the land of Egypt into a land that I espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, then said I unto them, Cast ye away every man hit the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. 
I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes, neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I wrought for my namesake that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. Wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which, if a man do, he shall even live in them. Moreover, also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which, if a man do, he shall even live in them. In my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. But I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sight I brought them out. Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them flowing with milk and honey which is the glory of all lands because they despised my judgments and walked not in my statutes but polluted my Sabbaths for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, mine eye spared them from destroying them, neither did I make an end of them in the wilderness. But I said unto their children in the wilderness, Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them, which, if a man do, he shall even live in them. They polluted my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew mine hand and wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted into the sight of the heathen in whose sight I brought them forth. I lifted up mine hand unto them also in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the heathen and disperse them through the countries because they had not executed my judgments but had despised my statutes and had polluted my Sabbaths and their eyes were after their father's idols. Wherefore, I gave them also statutes that were not good, and judgments whereby they should not live. And I polluted them in their own gifts, and that they caused to pass through the fire all that openeth the womb, that I might make them desolate, to the end that they might know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak unto the house of Israel, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me, in that they have committed a trespass against me. For when I had brought them into the land, for the which I lifted up mine hand to give it to them, then they saw every high hill and all the thick trees, and they offered there their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering, 
There also they made their sweet savor and poured out their drink offerings. And then I said unto them, What is the high place whereunto ye go? And the name thereof is called Bama unto this day. Wherefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Are ye polluted after the manner of your fathers, and commit ye whoredom after their abominations? For when ye offer your gifts, when ye make your sons to pass through the fire, ye pollute yourselves with all your idols, even unto this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. And that which cometh into your mind shall not be at all, that ye say, We will be as the heathen, as the families of the countries, to serve wood and stone. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people, and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face, like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel and ye shall know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, Go ye, serve every one his idols, and hereafter also, if ye will not hearken unto me, but pollute ye my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. For in mine holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. There will I accept them, and there will I require your offerings and the firstfruits of your oblations with all your holy things. I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein ye have been scattered, and I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. And ye shall know that I am the Lord, when I shall bring you into the land of Israel into the country for the which I lifted up mine hand to give it to your fathers. And there shall ye remember your ways and all your doings wherein ye have defiled. And ye shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that ye have committed. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have wrought with you for my namesake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel saith the Lord God. We read that far in God's Word and consider this morning Lord's Day 41 of the Catechism. Lord's Day 41. <clears throat> what doth the seventh commandment teach us? That all uncleanness is accursed of God and that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same and live chastely and temperately whether in holy wedlock or in single life. Doth God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? 
since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost. He commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. The heart of this commandment and that which will be the focus of the sermon this morning is the opening phrase of the answer in the Heidelberg's explanation of this commandment when it asks first, what doth the seventh commandment teach us? What does it teach us? What is the fundamental truth, even the truth of the Word of God that we must know and understand and believe with regard to God and His Word? And the answer is simply this, that all uncleanness is a curse of God. Everything else in the explanation of the catechism flows out of that simple phrase that all uncleanness is accursed of God. What it means is first of all God has a certain attitude toward what's called uncleanness. He curses it. He in no way blesses it. He in no way approves of it. He in no way overlooks it or puts up with it. All he does all he ever does is curse it. Uncleanness of any kind and of any type is cursed. He casts it away. He throws it away. It's vanity. It accomplishes nothing. And he does that with regard to what's called uncleanness. Now, you might suppose that the catechism is getting at sexual uncleanness, which certainly this is about. The meaning is that the Seventh Commandment teaches us that all uncleanness that regards the sexual life and actions and thoughts of a human being are accursed, and all of it. Unclean thoughts, cursed. Unclean seeing and actions and doings, cursed. All that the world considers blessed and good, even that which the world considers to be love, even great love, so that now we are to include it all in our own life as diversity inclusion is actually, in fact, cursed. God's love is not upon it, but is hatred. But even furthermore, this commandment teaches that all uncleanness. This is the commandment that actually teaches us how great is our sin. When we violate the first commandment, it's uncleanness, uncleanliness, which is why over and over in Scripture, idolatry and adultery and whoredoms are always associated and put together. In fact, the idea really is that when we serve other gods, it will always express itself in sexual impurity of one form or another. They go hand in hand. You can hardly separate them. That's cursed of God. But any violation of all the commandments is cursed of God. 
And then now the relationship to the second, seventh commandment really is this. The seventh commandment is what exposes how sinful we really, really are. We might imagine to ourselves that only great violations of the seventh commandment are accursed, which is why, especially even with those, the church that falls away quickly tries to put a good spin on those and give God's approval of them, adultery even in marriage. But as Jesus said and was quoted in a letter this morning, even to look upon a woman with lust in the heart is cursed by God. Consider with me this morning cursed uncleanliness. Cursed uncleanliness, and we notice the sin, secondly the explanation, and finally the calling. One of the great, great sins that we commit in justifying and minimizing our sin before God is that not only do we often fail deliberately to call sin, sin, we have a very hard time doing that. And we have a hard time doing that because we know sin is condemned. But right along with that is our utter failure, usually deliberately, to recognize that all sin is uncleanliness, all of it. And secondly, all uncleanliness is cursed of God. Now, there's two things about that that we have to understand. Some of it will be explained as we go on. But initially, let's understand what calling sin uncleanliness means and what it relates to. So in the first place, when we call something unclean or uncleanliness, we are contrasting it with that which is clean, obviously, and that which is holy. Uncleanliness is unholiness. Cleanliness is holiness. We have to understand that those are antithesis to each other. Now, when the Bible calls something unclean, it's emphasizing a particular aspect of sin. Other words for sin emphasize other aspects of sin. So, for example, when sin is called a trespass, then that recognizes, it's emphasizing that sin has a certain willful, deliberate rebellion to it. We are going and doing things that we ought not. We are trespassing. When sin is called uncleanness or uncleanliness, it's emphasizing the vile, gross perversion that sin is. And the Word helps us see that. So, when we talk about the clean versus unclean, we're talking about the difference between 
what something is intended to be or how it was originally made or intended to be used and something that prevents that or prohibits that or stops that from occurring. So, for example, we have a dish and we put the dish in the dishwasher and we clean it all up. And we do that so that we might use it to eat. Now, everybody knows not only that when you use the dish it becomes unclean, it becomes dirty, and we have to clean it before we use it again, otherwise bacteria and other nasty things that cling to our food and add to our food, enter into our body and defile us. But no one would take that clean dish now and go use it, say, to go clean out the toilet. We just wouldn't do that because that would make it unclean. That's the idea of that. I could give all kinds of examples and they're all over our life and our world. And what's amazing is there are so many examples because God has actually put them in the creation. It's amazing how many times the scripture uses words for sin that are pulled right out of the creation because God has made it that way. There is a reason why certain things that are unclean, that is, are bad for us, that would harm us and hurt us if we ingested them or touched them, are vile. They're vile. The human body that is decomposing, you may be around, you can't be around. Soldiers in wartime had to overcome often the natural instinct to vomit and throw up around the stench and the smell. Human waste. You may be around it. You can't be. God builds into this creation many, many examples of the difference between clean and unclean. And it has to do, remember, with something is made or given an intended use. Now this concept says... The Seventh Commandment says the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation applies to all sin. First of all, sexual sin, which is where it's brought up. And it's brought up here because it's especially sexual sin that highlights this. We might perhaps not see immediately how Killing someone may be unclean, or stealing their property is unclean. Maybe not even idolatry. But the Seventh Commandment especially teaches this defiling nature and the gross, vile nature of sin. But the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us, importantly, that this applies to all sin. When we make money our idol, when we covet it and we give our life to the pursuit of it, when money is our glory, when money is that which we serve, that which we think makes us happy, that is, when we have made money our idol, we have defiled ourselves. 
not only have we defiled what money is and how it can be used, but we defiled ourselves in our idolatry. When we don't use the Sabbath day the way it's intended, then we make that day unclean. When all sorts of forbidden worship according to the second commandment, that which is not what God has commanded, when certain things God has commanded and worshiped are omitted, then we defile that worship. And these are things the second commandment teaches us. Now, one of the reasons it's brought up here is because we ought to have an understanding of what's included under the seventh commandment. And when we have that, then we also recognize really how bad is our sin and the defiling, corrupting part of it. You see, if I would say to you this morning that all of you are, are idolaters, you would object probably. Say, Reverend, there's no such idols in my house or in my heart. I don't do what the Roman Catholics do. You won't find me praying to humans for my salvation. You won't find me bowing down or imagining that in the mass I'm physically eating Christ. I'm not a slave to their traditions. Well, then we don't understand what uncleanliness and how easily we defile ourselves. And these things are brought out in the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment is what shows us really the great difference between how God views things and how we view things. Not long ago, I preached a sermon on that. Preached it for communion. And I reminded ourselves that when it comes to sin, we need to look at sin, not how we view it, but as God views it. But it's especially with regard to the seventh commandment, you see the vast, vast difference between our thinking and God's. Do you not? And you see how corrupt and vile and wicked the church can become, that which is supposed to represent God's name. We, we read the Old Testament and we read about what Israel was doing and we say, tsk, tsk, you people, how could you do that? The modern church does the same thing. We do the same thing. We're no different than they are. God gives us some good. God brings us into a good place. God brings us his word, his statutes, and his judgments, and we immediately run to every high hill and put our idols up and serve them, imagining while we're serving God. Well, we're serving God at the same time, just like they did. And just like Israel, when given over to that sin, it eventually turns into the most corrupt and vile forms of idolatry, whereby we sacrifice our own children to idols in order to please ourselves, give them over to it, and engage in all kinds of vile fornication just like Israel did. These things are very applicable to us. But the seventh commandment is where a lot of it is exposed. It's, it's intended to be that way according to the catechism. You would think that in the church there would be a good, good understanding of the reality that adultery, for example, is accursed. At least there should be. You understand that? This is the commandment that teaches all adultery in the church and out of the church, in your life and their life. It's accursed. Now, 
before we move on, and again, we'll explain a little bit more as we go on, you understand what a cursed means. God only does two things. He blesses or he curses, one or the other. And he doesn't curse that which he blesses or bless that which he curses. He doesn't do that. He curses or he blesses. Cursing is the opposite of blessing. We have an understanding of blessing, then we have an understand idea of cursing. But cursing is where God thrusts something away. He pushes it away. He actually destroys it. His word is upon it that says there's nothing good going to come of this. You may think there's good. You may call this good. You may say this is so enjoyable, but I curse it. And God's curse is a living word, just like his word of blessing is a living word. It accomplishes that which he proclaims upon it. When God curses, he damns something to everlasting destruction, hell if you like. God says this will not be. This will not be tolerated. This will not be allowed in the land. It won't be allowed in the land of the church. It won't be allowed in the land of the world. And you say to yourself, well, Reverend, that curse doesn't seem to be very effective. It is. It is. God doesn't always accomplish the end of his word right away at the beginning, as you see with Adam. Adam did indeed die the day he ate of the forbidden fruit, contrary to the lie of the devil. He died spiritually, but that death would work its way out so that his body has been dead for many thousands of years now. God's word of curse and the living, powerful nature of that curse is such that it explains all of God's dealings with his people in the Old Testament, but also the word, the world. If you want to know why it is that there is no more a kingdom of Nimrod and why there is no more even a kingdom of Israel or Judah or as well as a kingdom of Babylon or of Greece or of Assyria or Egypt, then go back and read the Old Testament and God tells us it's because they were unclean. The ungodly wicked he cursed with a curse that removed them from off the face of the earth. And even with regard to his church, it is amazing how often God says, this is what I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to eliminate them. I'm going to take them out of the land that I gave them. I'm going to destroy them in the wilderness. Now God never does that completely because it is his church. This is where he's pronounced the word of his blessing. That doesn't mean every individual is blessed, but it does mean his church is blessed, and he will not destroy it completely, ever. But it does mean he removes the uncleanness. Time and time again, God did that. That's what we have to understand. That's what we have to understand what God's Word does. Uncleanness, whether it's of a sexual nature or whether it's an idolatrous nature and just is about coveting, can't remain in your life or my life or in the church. God curses it. He destroys it. He brings no good of it. Do we understand that? And do we understand that so great is this, that this world is doomed? Such is the uncleanness of man. 
and especially his sexual uncleanness, which grows every day. You see it, right? That this world is coming to an end. And if you want to know what's unclean, just watch what God destroys. His word of curse is on everything unclean. There's nothing unclean that he blesses. That is, that he preserves, that he keeps, that lives. Even our flesh, beloved. Amazing thing. It's unclean, isn't it? God has to cleanse it. God will bring it down to the grave. Oh, he has redeemed our flesh. That's a whole nother part of the word of God. But notice that even in that, it has to go through a purifying, a cleansing, that it may be raised up in the last day. But all the rest, all that is under God's curse is gone. All of our great culture and civilization and all of its economy and politics, all of its entertainment, all of its entertainers, there's no place for it. It's unclean. Oh, God will raise up a new creation out of this one, but only after he purges it. Do we understand that? And how do we understand the extent that things are cursed? You see, the way we look at it, we say, oh yeah, I, I see. I, I see a homosexuality that's out there in the world. Yeah, that's vile and, and that's wicked. Although pay attention. Pay attention how the world is influencing the church. And under the false doctrine of common grace, too. A lot of good out there in the world. There are a lot, a lot that's clean. A lot that God blesses. It's not true. So that, that now, too, is approved as love, mind you. As love. And we in this church may still look at that and go, okay, we agree, that's unclean. That's vicar, that's vile. But then there's all kinds of other stuff that we convince ourselves. Well, it's okay. I can indulge in that. I can live in that. Beloved, God curses adultery. That includes the adultery whereby a man remarries. The church approves that today. The Bible does not. God does not. Not only that, he doesn't tolerate it. He curses it. He curses the church that allows for it. He curses the elders that encourage it. <clears throat> he curses the families where that happens. Think you can watch pornography in your home when no one's looking? And get away with it? God curses it. He curses it. Do you understand what that means? He will not tolerate it. He will not put up with it. He will not allow you to live in it. If you're not a child of God, he will destroy you with it. And if you're a child of God, he in His grace, will recover you from it. But I can assure you, not while you live in it. He will destroy it. And He will destroy that which delights in it. Jesus said, I want to repeat this. I want to have it sink into your heads and your hearts. It has to. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, it's adultery. That was God saying, I curse that. I curse it. There's no good of it that will come of it. It cannot exist. It cannot continue. It cannot go on. It will not be allowed 
in my house and in my family. It will be not allowed in my kingdom. It will not be there in the new creation. It may not be there and will not be there in your heart. And if it is, remember it's accursed. That's what the seventh commandment teaches. And how radically different is that from our own thinking and much of the thinking in the church. And just to show you how radically different it is, it's amazing that when it comes to the seventh commandment, how if you're going to allow for it, you have to call it the exact opposite of what it is. Love. Oh, the church. The church needs to tolerate remarriage of its people. We have to be kind, good, loving people toward each because it's really love. No, it's not. It's cursed. There is nowhere in Scripture, not one place, nowhere, where God says, it's okay to remarry another whose spouse is not dead. Just remember that. If that's tolerated, that's the word of man, and it's cursed. Now, why is that? Now, why is that? And there's a lot we could say. But let's go back to the original definition of uncleanness and what cleanliness is and understand why it is. And it has to do with God. Did you ever ask yourself, why is it that idolatry, when man worships the creature, it doesn't matter what the creature is, it could be a tree stump and the gods of wood and gold, or just plain money and entertainment. That's the gods of the day, entertainment. You think you can watch the world's entertainment and it's harmless? Guess again. It is their idol. You are observing and watching their idol. And if you want proof, try to find some entertainment that doesn't have sin against the seventh commandment in it, as well as sin against the third commandment, fourth commandment, tenth commandment. But be that as it may, it, it's cursed. Now, what explains all this? What, what, what is it? it? It has to do with God. Why does that sin of idolatry lead to the most vile forms of sexual sin, namely homosexuality? That's what Romans 1 teaches, contrary to what the church says today. Why is that? And the answer is because it's against God. Man loves filth and even engages in filth, even filth that is against what we might say even nature, where even like men you wouldn't see normally groveling around in a sewer pit. Most people would say that's just gross, so men engage in homosexuality, and they call it love. What's going on there? Why is that unclean? And, and you should be able to see is God made all things a certain way. The reason why the Seventh Commandment exposes all sin as uncleanness is it exposes that, especially with regard to this, there's a violation of what God's plans and God's intentions are. And this is true not only in the church, but in the world. It is God who makes a man a man and a woman a woman. Anything that changes that, anything that alters that, anything that goes against that is uncleanness. It takes what God has made and the way he made it and the way he made clear it's intended to be and says, nope, nope. God is the one who made marriage. God instituted marriage. Sins against the seventh commandment say, I don't care what God says about marriage. I'm going to make marriage be what I want it to be. 
And if I don't like my marriage, I'll get another one. And if I don't like marriage, I'll just engage in behavior that's only legitimate before God in marriage and engage outside of marriage. Do we understand that? That's really what's going on. Now, your heart and your head, which are lying, may telling you, well, this is fun, this is okay, this is all right, but God says, no, it's cursed. I don't intend for you young people who aren't married to live as married people. It's not the way it may be. I didn't make you to pleasure and take self-love in pornography. I didn't make you that way. That's not love. Love is for others. Love is to give yourself, not to yourself, but to others. You see, it has to do with God, first and foremost. Sins against the seventh commandment aren't as innocent as you think. When a man takes another man's wife, he's violating his oath before God. He promised before God, I will love her or him until death do us part. They may not have intended that before God, but it doesn't matter. The oath that they took shows that they knew exactly what God intended and what God wants and what's clean. And they say, well, you know, I don't love them anymore. They don't love me. Or they misuse me. That can happen. Those are not grounds to divorce or remarry. They may be. It's unclean. Why is that? Well, again, you have to look at God and the way He says things and the way He regulates things and what God expects. And this carries through all the way through. I could go on and on and on. But now with the church, there's even more. And this too we have to understand. This is why, yeah, these things go on out there in the world, and it's easy for us to go out there and point the finger and see how wicked, but when it goes on in the church, it's far worse. And it's because <clears throat> of the other thing about who and what God is. You see, God has made an unbreakable covenant and oath with us. One reason why marriage is an unbreakable bond between one man and one woman for life is a reflection of God's own covenant with His church. And if there was ever a God that had reason to divorce His spouse, it was, it was God. Search the Scriptures. Read. Has the church ever been faithful to God? Answer, no. Time and time and time again. It engages in these sins. And God shows his attitude toward those sins. He just doesn't say, well, well, that's okay. Redemption is coming. I'll send a Savior to deliver you from your sins. No. Where is the temple in Jerusalem? Where is it? Where is that beautiful, wonderful temple? God destroyed it. He destroyed his own dwelling place, his own home, his own beautiful, glorious home that he had given. Destroyed his people, destroyed the land. Why? Because uncleanness is accursed. Don't think you can live in these sins and God's just going to look the other way. On the other hand, he always delivered a remnant. And he delivered that remnant this way, by indeed sending his son and taking the curse for their sins and laying it on him. God cursed his son. God cursed his son with death and what our sins deserve. And now we come along and we say, that God, 
that God who did that, and he did it for a reason. You know what his reason was? Was it simply so that we could be forgiven? Well, yeah. Unless you're forgiven, you can have no fellowship with God. God doesn't dwell with the unrighteous. But that's not all. That's not all. The same Spirit that brought Jesus incarnate into this world, the same Spirit that sustained Him in the grave for three days and brought Him forth, that Spirit is poured out of the church. And guess what? It's a Holy Spirit. It's a Spirit that delivers from uncleanness, the actual uncleanness. It takes individuals and people that are by nature fornicators as bad as the world can be. And it doesn't enter now into the church and the people and say, now, because Jesus died, you can all engage in these sins and all is good, fine, no. God comes along and reminds us what he really thinks of sin. And God uses that word. God uses the cross and God uses the life of Jesus Christ to actually purge those sins from us. Now, how does that express itself? Well, it expresses itself, as the Catechism puts it, in a way that is not in our nature. That's how we know it's from God. What does the Seventh Commandment teach us? Not only that all uncleanness is cursed of God, but that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same and live chastely and temporally, temperately. That's how it expresses itself. When the Spirit of Jesus Christ has entered your heart, He makes you detest that which you otherwise would not detest. He takes it so that your heart, which otherwise is going to say, I, I see some good points that the world makes. Perhaps this homosexual love is real love and ought to be tolerated and allowed, even promoted. This heart that says maybe DEI is correct, Maybe we ought to promote that in our businesses and in the, in the church. Maybe it's okay if the people fornicate while they're attending covenant. And it's okay to have divorce remarriage in the church. It takes that heart, that spirit, and says, no, I detest that. It takes the heart and soul that says, I like to watch naked women on my cell phone when no one's looking. And says, no, I hate that. I detest it. I've come to see what an abomination that is. I've come to see things the way my Lord sees them. And that's why, why I'm so thankful I can go to Him and be assured those terrible sins are forgiven and why I give my life to Him and only to Him. I don't give my life to everything that Hollywood says I ought to. I don't sit and cheer all these fornicating idols that the, worship, the world idolizes. I hate it. I despise it. want to be delivered from it. That's what God does. That's how much God curses this sin and evil. He delivers us from it. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, O Lord, we are thankful, thankful that Thou art the God who Thou art. God of holiness and righteousness, and the God, therefore, who delivers us from that very uncleanness and vileness of our sin, who forgives our sins and iniquities, and when forgives our sins and iniquities, so lives within us that we hate and despise the same. We pray that, O Lord, for ourselves. Forgive our sins, and do not allow us to live in these sins. 
Curse them. Purge them from us. And turn us evermore and always unto Thee, the living God, in whose name we pray. Amen.